the Ludogoyki Podcast, your monthly game-based learning earworm. We're your hosts. I am Antonis. And I'm Sarah. And today we are delighted to have as our guest, Jason Morningstar. Who is Jason, Sarah? Maybe you can introduce him to us. Jason Morningstar is the co-owner, creative director and head designer of Bully Pulpit Games, who have published games such as Night Witches, Winterhorn, which won an Ennies Judges Spotlight Award, and more recently Skydeck and Desperation, which was winner of the 2023 Indicade Tabletop Design Award. He's the only named person to have won two Diana Jones Awards for Excellence in Gaming for his games Fiasco and Grey Ranks. His games are often dark in theme, and through Bully Pulpit and other channels, he has created around 100 of them, both commercially successful and experimental. Reading through this extensive list of games and how and where they came into being, it's obvious he enjoys designing in response to competition calls, which is why we picked him as our ideal guest for Ludagoggy's jamming-themed month. To bring him even closer to Ludagoggy's core purpose, he consults on the use of games for teaching and learning. So welcome, Jason. Uh, we always like to ask our guests to round off the introduction by revealing a little known fact about themselves. So tell us, what is it that most listeners won't already know about you? Well, thank you for having me. Something that uh, often comes up uh, is uh, the, a question about my name. And it is my name. I was born with it. It's my grandfather's name. It's a Morningstar is a pretty common name in the upper Midwest in the United States. So I didn't pick it, although it is very on trend for our role-playing games, but uh, it's, uh, it's actually my name. That's, that's really interesting, actually, because that's the second time that has come up as a little-known fact, because the same thing happened when we interviewed Jay Dragon. Oh, no kidding. So I'm, I'm wondering, it's like that thing where people get named Bones become butchers. Do people named Morningstar and Dragon become role-playing game designers? <laughs> Apparently the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, if I see a book or a game by somebody named Morningstar and it's, it's RPG-themed, I will want to buy it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's my, always my hope, yes. Do you have any specific process to get ideas for games, name-inspired or not? I do, well, I, I, I don't really. I, I feel like uh, I'm, a, I'm a games thinker. I'm always thinking about the things that I'm experiencing or uh, interacting with uh, and how they could relate to, to playful experiences. So if I'm watching a film or I'm reading a book or uh, if I'm at an event, I'm always thinking about systems and relationships. Um, a really good example of that is that um, when I visit with my in-laws, my, my father-in-law loves Westerns and cowboy movies and cowboy TV shows. And I end up watching them with him as just kind of a way for us to bond, even though that's not really my thing. It's more his thing. But like I like to spend time with him. And, and so when I'm watching those that media, I'm always thinking about how the writers put relationships together. And sometimes there are really interesting dynamics that you can pull out by thinking about the the scaffolding that they're building around, regardless of the, the themes or the genre trappings of it. Uh, and so that's that's kind of how I think about things. Uh, and often that will inspire me uh, to uh, think about a game or a mechanic that uh, that I'm working on or that uh, that I want to make. Fiasco takes its inspiration from at least one Western, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's well, there's a, a yeah. If you look at the mediography of Fiasco, there's a number of uh, it's neo noir, right? So there's it, it, uh, it sort of crosses genres, but um, uh, the the underlying themes in the media that inspired it are very similar, right? They're all about dumb people getting in trouble. Yeah. 
games are a pretty amazing tool to develop systems thinking, aren't they, Jason? Yeah, I think so. Uh, because you're really trying to give people the tools to recreate an experience consistently, right? And so you have to be thinking systemically to do that. Uh, and at the same time, you don't get to be there in the box when they open it. Uh, so whatever you give them has to be enough, uh, which is a really interesting. There's an interesting uh, tension to that. Yeah, so, so we often talk about that when we're, we're doing these interviews about the idea that a game doesn't really exist as a game until the players interact with it. So what you're doing is you're building a system in which a game will happen. That's right, yeah. And there's a, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the role of the designer versus the facilitator or the, the people who are engaging with the activity. Uh, and uh, those are interesting conversations. But in, in the end, really, the materials that I provide are what you have to work with and how you use those is completely out of my control. So I, I, the, the things that I give you are as important as the things I don't give you, uh, in, in my view. So, for example, in Fiasco, I never say in the instructions who gets to talk when, which is a really common thing in tabletop role-playing games to structure that interaction. And I don't. Uh, and that's very deliberate because I'm trusting your local culture of play will have a, a, a really good way of doing that that you'll sort of comfortably fall into uh, without me telling you how to do it. So to sort of hone in a bit and sort of go a bit more granular in, in the way the games are put together. So we've talked really about systems, which is very sort of broad, I guess. Um, what about game mechanics? Do you have a favourite game mechanic? Um, and if so, have you used it in your games? And, and how did that work out for you? Yeah, I'm always interested in um, finding new ways to communicate interesting ideas. And often I'll learn about things that I want to implement. Uh, and a recent example of that was, uh, I, I was thinking about how often in, uh, in games, particularly in role-playing games, tabletop and live action role-playing games, sometimes things happen that feel like magic, that, that feel like everyone at the table has consented to the perfect outcome for something, even though no one's communicated. And, and as I looked into that, I realized that what's happening there is a, a well-known phenomenon called apophenia. Um, we're, our brains are designed to match patterns, right? There was a time when being able to match patterns was the difference between being a saber-toothed tiger's dinner or, you know, living <laughs> another day. And so, like, we're, we're really um, optimized for finding patterns, and apophenia is finding those patterns where they don't really exist. And that's what happens when that magic moment occurs when you're playing games with people. Uh, so I, I thought to myself, how do I maximize that? How do I lean into apophenia and, and, and deliberately create situations where that occurs and that sort of magic feeling is the, the meat of the experience? And the, the game that we most recently published, uh, Desperation, that's it, all it is. That's what it does. It was designed to push that as far as I could, uh, I could push it. Uh, and I think it's, I feel like it's successful uh, at doing that. So like that's a, that's a game mechanic that's sort of also using, I, I don't know, like our brain, the, the way our brains are designed uh, and sort of tricking you into doing the thing that I want you to do in the game. Uh, so I'm excited about that right now. So without giving too much away, is it possible for you to describe a little bit further how you, how you managed to do that, how you managed to do that leaning into the that yeah, phenomenon? Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. So in, in desperation, it uh, the game sort of flips the script on agency in role-playing games. So normally, if you play a role-playing game, you play a character, and you, you have complete autonomy over what that character says and does. And in desperation, you you're responsible for a group of characters and you don't get to decide what they say, but you do get to decide who says it. So, so within the concept of the game, you're playing in a scenario where there's some crisis that is sort of winnowing down this group. Uh, one of the, one of the scenarios that ships with the game is there's a, a blizzard in 1888 and this little community is isolated and they're slowly starving to death, going crazy. Only a few people are going to survive to see the spring. The other one is a shipwreck. That's the same kind of situation. You're trapped on boats. Uh, you know, you're, you, only a few people will survive. It's a desperate situation. And so within the context of that, you're given prompts that say things like, um, I, uh, I chopped down the entire orchard of apple trees just so that I could start a fire and feel warm one last time. Uh, but it doesn't tell you who said that. So in the in the in the game, you look at the the context. You look at the survivors that are left, and what what ends up happening is that you know who said that from the the, the people that are that are available to you as characters. Everybody at the table is like, oh yeah, yep, that was definitely Velma Hetzel, and uh, <laughs> it's it feels like uh, it feels like th- that magical moment I was describing. Uh, because the game doesn't tell you, uh, you get to decide, but you know, uh, because those patterns are asserting themselves in your, in your, in your brain as you play. Cool. So one of the things again, I'm following up again. Um, so one of the things that I've noticed is that it seems to be almost a characteristic of sort of like the indie game scene that there is this this lack of fear about leaning into some quite dark themes. Um, I mean, I often talk to people who maybe don't play so many games, um, and they're they're often of the opinion that games need to be fun and they need to be you know full of laughs and whatever. Um, and yet a lot of the games that you create and some of the other people we've spoken to as well, they're, they're not full of laughs because they have these very, very dark themes. Um, where do you think the fun, um, if maybe that, that's not the right word, comes from? Where the, the sort of uh, the impulse to want to play these kind of games, given that they're quite grim in some cases? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um Something, I've adopted uh, something that I learned about from backpacking, which is uh, the idea of type one and type two fun. And type, type one fun is it's fun when you're doing it. It's just fun. Um, playing shoots and ladders with a child is fun, right? Um, uh, For five minutes or so. <laughs> well, where, you know, but, but the, the idea is that there's nothing more to it than the moment. You're just engaged with it and it's either fun or it's not. But if you're enjoying it, it's, you're enjoying it in the moment. Yeah. And type two fun is... It might be a struggle, right? It might be a challenge, but at the end of it, looking back on it, you can talk about the fun of it. You, you, you've had fun in retrospect. Uh, and a lot of my games are type two fun uh, in that in the moment you're, you know, you're dealing with challenging material. You're exploring dark themes, uh, which can also have light moments. And, you know, it's always leavened with humor. Sometimes that is gallows humor. <laughs> uh, but I think my games are often very joyful. Uh, you're, you know, you're laughing at, sometimes at the absurdity of how dark things can be. Um, but, um, yeah, so like there are different ways to engage with material and, 
if what you want is escapism or if what you want is a power fantasy, there's, there are many options for that. And if you're drawn to that, that's great. Uh, go you know, enjoy that. I enjoy that. Um, but sometimes that's not really what you want. And, you know, you want to tell a compelling and visceral story about people pushed to the edge. And you can do that, too. And I'll say as a designer, sometimes that's easier to do. It's easier to make a story that is super dark uh, just because all those pieces are already in place for you in terms of the emotional register of the experience, in terms of uh, finding ways to sort of get uh, reactions, elicit reactions from participants. Uh, if you're uh, another great term I learned, this is from the world of LARP, is a, 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 a dying in cold water. Like if you're making a game that's about dying in cold water, you're already dying, you're already uncomfortable, all those pieces are there for you. It's, it makes it easier to do. So you see a lot of dying in cold water games. <laughs> How do you design for what is not there? Like I can see uh, as a complex process, but easier to imagine the things that you want to be put in the game and that are there for you to use. But how do you design for something that the, the players will come up with themselves that you cannot anticipate? That's, a, that's an awesome question, and thank you for asking it. There are a couple of ways that I think about this, and one of them is a little, I don't know, it's, it's a little weird and esoteric, but I, but I, I use it and, and it works for me, and if it works for other designers... That's great. And that is that I listen to what the game wants from me. I listen to what it wants to be. So as I'm building something, I'm always trying to, to understand what it is that it wants to be. Uh, in the same way that maybe a sculptor with a, a raw piece of soapstone doesn't exactly know what's inside there when, when they start carving, but that it will assert itself and it will tell you. Um, and the, the, there are all kinds of affordances to games that, that can, can change uh, if you're thinking this way. A really obvious one is who's in charge? Is the game telling me that it needs to have somebody who's like a game master or a facilitator? Does it need that role? To, uh, or does it want authority and credibility to be spread around? Um, those are the kinds of things that if I start building in one direction and I feel friction or resistance, or uh, if in playtesting, it just doesn't feel right. And other people also are like confused by the, those choices. Then, you know, the game's telling me it wants a different, a different setup. Um, and often I will see those myself as I, as I build things out. And more often I will see them when I actually play them with other people. Uh, and the things that just don't feel right or that create extra friction or that are an unnecessary burden or that are places where players want to make something new and the game prevents them from doing that, you know, those are areas that I can pare it back, take things out uh, and trust in the sort of native genius of the people playing the games to make it interesting and fun. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so then, <laughs> I don't think everybody works that way, but, but I do. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, this podcast aims for people to learn from each other's experience. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure, and I, I'm learning from it, and I'm pretty sure our audiences as well. The next question has to, I guess it's an extrapolation of the previous one, but, um, or it could be. <laughs> uh, what is the biggest challenge you have faced as a game designer, and how did you resolve it if yes? 
Yeah, the challenge I'm facing currently, I have not resolved, and I invite your listeners to help me resolve it, which is that since the pandemic, I've had a real bottleneck related to playtesting. I used to be very active uh, uh, at uh, conventions. I traveled a lot. I had lots of opportunities to put my work before groups before it was finished um, in person, and those opportunities have all dried up. I'm not traveling very much. I'm trying to stay very cautious about my health and my family's health. And uh, as a result, uh, not play- I have a harder time getting playtesting to happen. So I actually have a backlog of games that are essentially done until I get more feedback from them. And that's been a, a big challenge. There are ways to address that. Um, um, you know, you can you can play test virtually or remotely, um, but that's it's not as effective, uh, and it's uh, often difficult for me to get the feedback I need in that format. So I've been doing a lot of blind testing where I ask other people to just put it on their table with their friends and then report back without me observing it, and that's you know that's an essential part of the process, but um, it provides a different feedback than I would observe if I were actually there as well. So I would say that right now that is my biggest challenge for sure. Mm. I imagine that's a challenge a lot of people are facing because yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're designing sort of digital games, um, your medium is going to be online or it's going to be via a computer and, and the game will be mediated via that. But if you're designing tabletop games, you really need to be putting that on a tabletop and doing it in person. Yeah. Well, and also live action games are very difficult to test uh, remotely. So it's uh, it's difficult. Uh, and the other thing that is a challenge for me, and this is actually kind of a good news uh, challenge because of this, is that there are lots of people who are making games at this point. It's been democratized. Uh, it's easier than ever. This is a golden age for, for uh, role-playing game creation. And so, like, there's lots of people who have the same problem and why would they test my game when they can test their own? So there's, <laughs> there's a whole cohort of people who maybe weren't game designers, but now are. And, uh, so that's, uh, that's a delightful challenge. I'm glad those people are making their own games. I, I wish they had space to also test for me, but they don't. Well, I have to, I have, to have a think about that. And, and yes, definitely put it as a challenge to anybody who's listening and has maybe come up with their own solution to that issue. <laughs> Yeah, and I also invite them, of course, to uh, reach out to me if they're interested in playtesting. Um, we will, of course, put all your contact details that you're willing to share um, in the in the post when we post it in Ludagoggy so that people can get in touch. Excellent. Thank you. So what are the games, apart from your own, obviously, um, because I imagine that if you're designing those games, you must, you must have some uh, liking towards them, some affection towards them. But apart from your own games, what are the games do you like the most and why? Yeah, I do love all my games, like evil little stepchildren. But uh, <laughs> uh, games that I come back to, I was thinking about games that I, I particularly admire that I come back to a lot. And the game that my local group probably plays the most is Archipelago 3, which is by Matthias Holter. Uh, and uh, it is just a beautiful little game that I often describe as like a flatbed truck of, of a role-playing game. So it's a tabletop game that, that is very utilitarian. It doesn't provide any sort of setting or uh, thematic information. It's just sort of a, a system for, for allowing you to, to build off of it. It's really beautifully designed. It's really clever. It's I think it's been modestly influential in my weird corner of the design world. 
uh, one of the things it does is uses ritual phrases. So, um, uh, for example, uh, if you're playing and someone describes something that you think is probably going to be a challenge for, for that character or for the group, you can say, uh, I don't think that's going to be that easy. And when you say that, uh, those specific words in that order tell everyone that you're you're engaging in some kind of conflict. There's some uncertainty. Uh, you're communicating uncertainty. Uh, and there are others. There's a whole series of phrases like that that just allow you to have this conversation that is both structured uh, but also very freewheeling. Because you know you can say anything you want because someone will stop you. Uh, with, I don't think it's going to be that easy if if you push beyond uh, a certain threshold of the group's comfort for uncertainty, which is really uh, uh, very reassuring. It allows you to play harder, uh, and it's uh, it's really fun. Another great phrase in that game is "try a different way," which is a, a way of saying I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't like the direction this is heading, uh, or I think you can do better. You know, like the your creative input. I know you and I love you. I trust you. Think of something even better than that. Uh, try a different way with a group that's full of people who trust and love each other. That's a really supportive and challenging tool that allows you to just play in a richer, deeper way. So I love uh, Archipelago. That's really interesting. That's like taking the the, the sort of safety uh, mechanisms that often come along with role playing games and actually introducing them almost as mechanics within the game. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of working. Yeah, yeah, and it's a. It, it, I think it works well in a supportive uh, group that loves and trusts each other for sure. Uh, another game that I would uh, shout out is uh, BFF, uh, which is a game about playing tween girls having tween girl adventures it's by uh, ross cowman and terry colane it's a, just a gorgeous game uh that does exactly what it is sets out to do anybody can play it i've played it with grown-ups i've played it with tween girls it always works um it, it's uh really built for this underserved uh group of people uh it's intuitive it's immersive it's just a lovely lovely game i'm a big fan of bff and i wish more people played it I should look out for that one, definitely. Yeah, these are ones I didn't know, for example. <laughs> so these are very interesting suggestions. Oh, good. Yeah. And on the same notes, uh, are there any other game designers that you would uh, that you admire and you would recommend us to interview? Oh, I have such a list. Uh, I thought about this. I, I suspected you would ask this question and thought about it quite a lot. Um, I can I can name many people. I'm gonna. Given uh, the, the sort of the nature of this podcast, I think you should talk to Bjarke Peterson, who is a, a LARP designer and sort of LARP luminary, who's doing really interesting things uh, in sort of the Nordic LARP tradition, um, making uh, big, challenging, interesting, innovative games uh, that uh, are kind of mind blowing and that are full of really elegant, subtle mechanics that uh, I'm in the process of stealing. So that's uh, uh, Bjarke Peterson's the guy that I would I would say, oh, yeah, go talk to Bjarke as a, as a designer, for sure. Excellent. Hope you're taking notes there, Antonis, so that we can get in touch. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Mostly to play, though. <laughs> so uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out in games design? You mentioned earlier there are a lot of, of people who weren't games designers before but are now, and there's this great democratization going on. So how, what encouragement or advice would you offer to people who are on that, that starting out on that journey? 
Uh, my, my cynical advice is don't do it. Don't stop. Turn back. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I say that in jest. It, it's, um, it can be hard work and it can be unrewarding. So just know that going in that you should be very clear about your goals. And if your goal is to make it your day job and be famous, then that's probably a bad goal. Uh, but if you don't, if you can't help it, if it's just uh, your way of expressing things, which is the truth for me, uh, this is my mode of expression. If I feel things, uh, uh, rather than writing a poem or painting, I'm going to make a game about it. Uh, and so I can't help it. And um, my advice for people in that uh, in that boat, or that uh, really love it and want to have fun, is to play everything. Uh, you should be playing all kinds of games, even games that aren't particularly in your wheelhouse, games that make you uncomfortable, games you don't understand, uh, games that challenge you or that games that you think are boring and dumb. Play those games and find out why that's true or that it's not true. Um, uh, think about them all the time. And uh, I said earlier, listen to games when they tell you what they want to be. Uh, I think that is uh, an important lesson. Uh, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but certainly for me, like I've become more and more intuitive about just listening, uh, and and I get you get better at it. So I feel like after many years of doing this, I'm I'm better at it now, uh, at listening to the games that I'm in the process of making. And when I say play everything, I also mean read everything observe everything think in systems think in relationships break things down um you know if you watch a film think about how that was how that came to be think about the relationships implicit both in the the narrative that was presented but also in the creative process that brought that to you like i'm always thinking about those things and i'm always uh thinking about how the things i'm reading could influence uh, what what i'm practicing I read a lot of history, and that, that comes out in my games. You see, a lot of my games are set in historical moments because that is uniquely interesting to me. There are probably things as a, you know, as a game designer that are uniquely interesting to you. Make make games about those things. You know, express the things that are top of mind for you. Those are that was a, that was a long answer. It was a lot of answers, but but uh, hopefully that's helpful to someone. It's really interesting to hear you say, you know, listen to games um, when they're telling you what they want to be, because that sounds like the same kind of language that you hear from from people who write fiction or some people who write fiction when they're talking about creating characters. Or you might hear the same kind of thing from from a, a sort of intuitive visual artist. And I think it sort of really goes to emphasise that there's sort of two aspects. Well, I mean, in my opinion, two aspects to, to games design. There's the art and the craft. And and it really feels like you're emphasizing the the art aspect of it here as well. Oh, that is such a um, that is such a contentious topic, right? Because there are people, and I I used to be one of them, and I kind of still am. That think about game design as applied art. That if I, you know, if I could make a well turned table leg on my lathe, uh, that's sort of the equivalent to what I'm doing. Um, I don't know that I, I believe that anymore. I think that there's fine art as, as well to it. But there's a there's a component to what I do that I, I really feel strongly that it needs to be uh, like a user's manual. You're going to be creating the art, not, not necessarily me. Uh, so like what I need to do is give you the instruction manual to 
change out the carburetor in your 1966 Volvo. Uh, And it has to be that clear and it has to be that straightforward so that you can do the thing. Um, And there's art in that, but that's kind of applied art. Uh, And then the, the, you know, in in that model, the fine art is really the beautiful thing that you and your friends make out of, out of that. Um, I think that there's some fine art in what I do too, but uh, it is, uh, it is a contentious topic and that people, people will fall in different places uh, on that, uh, on, on that list. And certainly when I'm talking about listening to your game, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, woo in that a little bit of, uh, <laughs> fine art, I guess. I, I've also made this reference several times in this podcast that I, I do see games as a form of art, but now I want to ask you further because, um, what you said is contentious. I, I think it's, it falls back into itself if you think that games are encompassing different forms of art on themselves. Uh, there is literature in games. There is, if if we're talking about video games, there's also music. There is, uh, there's there's theater in there. There is, uh, there's graphic art. There is, uh, there is a lot of uh, you know painting and uh, there, there's there are a lot of different forms of arts that are incorporated into creating a game. So, I don't know what what's what's your take on this? Like how. Are games still uh, just applied art or are they a new form of art when they're uh, implementing in themselves different forms of art? Yeah, it's true. They're, uh, um, they're incorporating a lot of different disciplines, artistic disciplines, uh, creative disciplines. Uh, and that's something I find very satisfying about it. Like right now I'm art directing a project and I get to work with an artist, uh, to sort of convey a vision, but really I'm collaborating, you know, I'm, it's, uh, it's no longer my vision. It's our vision and in some ways her vision. Uh, and that's really fun. And that happens also with developmental editing, right? Someone else will look at my work and be like, well, why did you make this choice? What's the best way to approach this? And having that conversation, uh, it becomes collaboration. And certainly when it comes time to produce an object, a physical or a digital object, then you're collaborating with all kinds of people on different levels. Uh, and, uh, I like that very much. I think that's a beautiful part of it. There are people, and I've, I've been this person, uh, who, you know, like from beginning to end creates a thing. Uh, and that can be satisfying as well. Like I'm doing the art, I'm going to lay it out. I've, it's my creation. Uh, and, uh, the, the entire thing from beginning to end is Jason. Uh, but it's, Typically, in my experience, you get something that's better and more interesting, more usable, more beautiful uh, if you're working with other people. Uh, so the idea that you're you're incorporating lots of dis- d- different artistic and aesthetic disciplines uh, very much appeals to me. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of what I heard. So Yeah, yeah, I think it gets there. It's, a, it's a more of a philosophical question. It's like, does it really matter in the end whether you can call it art or you can call it Jason? <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> what matters in the end is can you play it? Can you have fun with it? Do you enjoy the process that you're in? <laughs> yes, certainly. And I certainly do not engage in those philosophical debates. I'm very happy to let you call it whatever you want. Uh, I, I, I'm often, I, I just call them games too. Like I, if you look at my work and say, well, this isn't a role-playing game. Well, great. If you have fun with it, I don't care what you call it. That's great. That's fine. Uh, following up on the same uh, philosophical route, kind of, <laughs> what is a lesson that you've learned from designing games that can be applied outside of games? 
Well, something that I learned from Joanna Kolyonin, who is also somebody that you should have on your on your show, would be a wonderful guest, uh, is uh, everything's a designable surface. So, uh, you know, I'm always thinking, and we've talked about this, like I'm always thinking about systems, I'm always thinking about social contracts, relationship networks, um, the idea that um, if you're looking at the world around you, there are things that are designable within it uh, and they're not necessarily the things that are intuitively obvious uh, and that I definitely have learned from games so uh, in in the context of games for example maybe I have a game that uses playing cards and I can look at an individual playing card and it's a designable surface right there's lots of ways that you can use playing cards most of which have been thought of right you can turn them you can invert them uh, you can bend them in half you can throw them like there's lots and lots of ways that you can use cards and then if you combine two cards you can do all kinds of other things with them so like you can look at that object and think about it in a systemic way uh and you can do that with everything in your life you know like uh i, I just uh I, I i think that way about everything now like watching a cowboy movie with my in-laws uh i'm you know i'm appreciating the cowboy movie but i'm also thinking is this you know how are they how, how did the writer of this apportion you know the roles in in a way that created balance and harmony uh you know sort of thematically or uh you know why does it why is this shaped a certain way uh and you can do that again with with anything so that's that's the thing i've learned i think in games make that manifest and make it really obvious and you can take that with you to other things we're circling back to system thinking right <laughs> yeah yeah totally absolutely love it well i, I love it that's great Uh, it's, uh, I just think it's, it's such a valuable thing to, to make games. I, I, I feel, uh, that it is, it's my means of expression, uh, but it also really, it helps me look at the world in different ways too. So, uh, I think there's a lot of value to that in a personally fulfilling way. And hopefully, uh, my work helps others as well. Antonis and I both have a sort of obviously a background in, in games for learning. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm re getting really excited about now is, is sort of moving on from that and actually um, getting learners to design games as a learning experience because the, the, the sort of that systemic thinking is so valuable um, because obviously to get to grips with a topic Um, deeply enough to be able to make a game about it, you can't help but learn everything about that that topic and and, and really get into it in how it all fits together. It's true, and also if you approach a community of subject matter experts who sort of already have that, and then give them playful tools for communicating that, they're often really good at it. Yeah, I'm on the same path, Sarah. <laughs> It's one of the, the one of the things that I do. I, I um, visit um usually it's in an academic setting but people who are interested in creating playful experiences and who who know a lot about the thing that they're teaching obviously um they're often very excited when i, I you know i show them a low fidelity low friction way of communicating that because the expectation is often well when you say games You mean a video game that's going to be very brittle, that's going to be hard to update, it's going to cost half a million dollars or something. Uh, and I'm, I, my approach, of course, is like index cards and Sharpies. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to make things that are very, uh, very simple, very easy to iterate, 
uh, and uh, that are easy to create in the first place. And that's often well received and they make cool things. So. Exciting times, I think, in, in games design and in, in games for learning. Well, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. It's been like a really, really fascinating conversation. And uh, Yeah, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Antonis. Thank you, Sarah. This was really fun. I'm, I'm glad that you had me on your show. And this has been the Ludogwiki Podcast. Game, Game over! over.